It's almost time, kids. The clock is ticking. The boogeyman is coming. What? He's gonna get you. 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 Welcome to the now-playing Halloween Retrospective Series. Only trying to give America a good show. Hosted by Stuart. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up. Arnie. I prayed that he would burn in hell, but in my heart, I knew that hell would not have him. And Brock. One must remember not to be fooled by his calm, unassuming facade. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? Due to the current release of Rob Zombie's new Halloween movie, H2, we will be watching and reviewing all of the films in the Halloween series. These eyes will deceive you. A warning, these conversations will be spoiler-filled, and as the movies are R-rated, there may be some objectionable language. Every other word you say is either hell or shit or damn. Trick or treat, motherfucker! Today we're talking about Halloween 5, starring Donald Pleasance and Danielle Harris. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart, I'm in L.A. Arnie, I'm so scared of Haddonfield, I'm now locked in my basement. All right, so we talked about last time in Halloween 4 that there's the first credit, the first credit sequence that did not have a pumpkin. This one brought back the pumpkin. Yay. And and um, it also had a little bit of, you know, the ominous music again, but it actually brought the theme back in, which was nice. But let me just say, that was the most vicious jack-o'-lantern carving I'd ever seen. You know what? I was down with it, people. I thought it was cool. Oh, the yeah, I'm cuts, liking it. Basically, but... yeah, yeah. The quick cuts of the pumpkin may have been the most satisfying pumpkin opening sequence we've seen. Halloween 5 doesn't have a thing on Halloween John Carpenter original, but it does win the prize for best opening sequence in my book. I'll give it the best Michael Myers opening, but the Atari 2600 pumpkin still wins for me. Mm. <laughs> okay, Arnie. So let's get right into this. They recap the end of four at the beginning of five, but yet they pull it back to the future part two on us and they insert things that weren't there the last time that we should have seen the first time we saw the scenes. Yeah, that <laughs> pissed me off. You know, the series that does this the worst is The Evil Dead, where they're going to recap the last movie, but change it. And that's what they did here because I actually, I emailed Brock. I'm like, Brock, did they throw a stick of dynamite down that hole in the last movie because it really looked like the last footage and then the stick of dynamite like well okay i could believe that they all thought michael myers was dead if they threw some freaking tnt down there uh yeah i don't remember that happening in the last one but although was it the cops or the rednecks carrying the nitro i i don't know i don't want to remember halloween 4 let's just accept that this is the way that it happened because i can't go back there they also show michael crawling away and then From- finding some sort of hovel with some guy in it uh, yeah and you know it- they surprised me here i i think we all thought that you know when you start out a horror movie you want to see a death right away he's wandering it up to some hermit's cubby and uh <laughs> of course i'm thinking all right well this is just what they're throwing at us for him to kill no 
it's the plot device to explain what he does for a damn year <laughs> until we can get to Halloween 1989 one year later to pick up again. Now, I get that this guy's a hermit, but yeah. I mean, it's really fucking weird that this guy in a mask stumbles into your place and you decide to keep him. <laughs> well, he was keeping a parrot as well. So, I mean, I feel like he was a collector of anything odd. I mean, I don't understand how a hermit like him exists in central Illinois. Arnie, <laughs> obviously, you and I have never met a hermit like that because, well, they don't apparently socialize with other people. But he doesn't <laughs> notice mines exploding by his cubby. He never talks to anyone about a mass murderer living escaped in his area. He He's, he's just completely there to explain that Michael has nurtured for a year in a comatose state and then will wake up again on Halloween to continue almost exactly what he was doing in the last film. And I understand that Michael is unstoppable, but if a normal man walks into your hovel and falls down over the course of a year, isn't he just going to die of malnutrition or something? You'd think you'd ta he'd take him to the hospital. I mean, you'd think that he would recognize that, wow, there's like 50 bullet holes in him. Maybe this is beyond the scope of the help that I can give him. You know, I didn't realize that until right now. He crawls out into this guy's cave or whatever the next day, which is November 1st, and then he awakens again for Halloween the following year. Correct. Oh, it didn't occur to me that he his body turns off until Halloween the next year. That's what they're saying, is that his body just shuts down until this, whatever, Halloween reanimates him. That has to be what they're saying, but it's not, it's not, it's not clear, because you two had to say it before it even occurred to me. Well, they don't spend a whole lot of time lingering on, on Thanksgiving and Christmas in Haddonfield. It's like, <laughs> Halloween's over, now Halloween! <laughs> you know, Wouldn't would it be great, though, if a pilgrim started killing people around <laughs> Halloween? I mean, around Thanksgiving. I, I, I really do want what the town does for the rest of the 11 months because I, I just can't imagine it being any place uh, other than a slaughter ground. But you got you know, there, there are towns we, we know, there are towns, I believe, in like Illinois or Midwest United States that ban dancing when children die. That's in only in Footloose. Well, my point exactly. In Footloose, they ban dancing, okay? And so, they not, of all the towns in the whole country to ban Halloween, it should be Haddonfield. You'd think. You'd think. You'd if you could ban dancing someplace else, you can ban Halloween. But then the terrorists win, Brock. <laughs> <laughs> You know, what, what are the Christmas cards like? Do they send them hoping you survive Michael this year? You know, like, <laughs> it's like John uh, McClane needs to stay home for Christmas. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's the same thing, yeah. okay? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. It's, anyway, we must accept this conceit <laughs> if we're to continue with this series. And so, by necessity, I will accept that Michael lives in solitude in a cave with a hermit and a parrot for one year. <laughs> <laughs> and then wakes up to basically pick up exactly where he left off, which is what they, you know, it's the Halloween 2 thing. We just want to keep doing what we did in the last film. Except, except, of course, can't be, can't go without mentioning, the real ending of Halloween 4 was that Daniel Harris's character, Jamie, had uh, picked up a knife and stabbed her foster mother in the bathroom repeatedly. And that Donald Pleasance uh, was left horrified looking at what he believed to be another sociopathic child. 
They biffed. Can I just say that right off the bat? <laughs> bat? They pull away from that idea. They do everything they can to cheat and make us feel that Jamie is a victim again and that she has no homicidal impulses. That the homicidal impulses are, in fact, just a psychic linking with the killer that's still alive. You can thank your friend Mustafa for that because oh, yes. the script writers wanted to go down the evil Jamie route. Now, they weren't going to get rid of Michael because Mustafa wouldn't have that, but they were going to have Michael's little accomplice, and Mustafa said no to that, too. Well, it's bold, and that could have gone awry, but at least it would have been different, and it was where they were heading. I mean, that's I, I didn't put that in their head. They told us this is where we're going to go, and then they instantly slam on the brakes at the beginning of this movie and say... She's not a killer anymore. The, in fact, she killed no one because the foster mom lived and is vacationing again on <laughs> Halloween at some country home. But it's, it's like it never happened. Basically, it's like we don't want you to ever think that it happened. We only want you to think that there's some kind of bond between the two of them. Wait a minute, though. They put the kid in a kitty sanitarium, like a children's clinic, which, again, this is why I think the last one was more like the first Halloween movie. This one's like Halloween, too. Yes. Instead of a hospital, it's a it's a clinic for the kid to be in. So it's yeah. very similar there. It's exactly the same thing. But they they put the kid in the clinic, and she you know has these episodes. Oh, and, and can I just say the biggest laugh? I had the biggest laugh watching this. The opening sequence they're showing how she had knifed the foster mother, and then she wakes up from a dream, and a nurse comes running in, and she says, "Do you want me to call your mom?" <laughs> <laughs> All right, are you talking about the mom that was like uh, Jamie Lee Curtis that died in the car crash? Or are you talking about the woman that I knifed last year 12 times? Uh, the one that I was just dreaming about killing. No, I don't think that if I were a foster parent, I would continue in that role if the child picked up a knife and stabbed me 12 times. I don't think I'm going to be there for little <laughs> Jamie after she does me with a shank in the bathroom. Well, in that line, I mean, it's not like Jamie's still living there. She's in a sanitarium. Right. At that point, she doesn't have foster parents. Right. There's but no foster there. But the sister running away to Yes, exactly. But at least we still have Rachel who is uh who's there uh, I I I don't understand why. I do not understand why Rachel is there. It doesn't make any sense that Rachel would visit this little girl who is just her foster sister and who stabbed her mom. It doesn't make right. any sense. It doesn't make no. any sense why no. why um, no. and that they would go celebrate Halloween together with her. <laughs> with her. Oh my god. Yeah, of all people. <laughs> and and it's, it doesn't make any sense that that Rachel's friends are as close if not closer to this girl to the point where they visit her without Rachel around. Can I just say that I love how in horror movies where a teenager does survive to the secret by the sequel, they have a whole new group of close personal friends that we never saw before. <laughs> yeah, and and I love this one that her personality was different. In the year that, uh, after going through that whole ordeal last year, she seems more confident, more sexually confident, and, you know, you know, just different kind of character. And maybe they did that so they can kill her, but it just didn't make any sense to me how that character didn't carry over. Jamie carried over okay. I thought the consistency was there for her except for the episodes. But for Rachel, I thought it was a whole different person. It's just same actress yeah yeah jamie uh, is now confined in a hospital having nightmares that michael is coming for her mm -hmm. and 
she gets so out of her head, so panicked at one point, she cannot breathe. Follow me through this. They move her. They're like, she can't breathe, so they're like running her down the hall on a gurney to a room where they can perform a tracheotomy. I'm like, you need to do that instantly. You don't need to get to the tracheotomy room to get to allow her to breathe. <laughs> the tracheotomy uh, room. <laughs> and then right before they puncture a hole in her throat, who should appear? Donald Pleasance. Sam Loomis is there to say, no, don't do it because I don't want the child to breathe. I mean, uh, <laughs> does anyone understand the opening sequence of this movie? I was totally thrown for a loop after having thought I understood the glimmer of the idea of where Halloween four was taking us into. I now feel like, wow, I do not understand anything anymore. Nonsense. I have to say that, I mean, what we're trying to do here is set us up, reintroduce us to the character of Jamie, and instantly set up that she has a psychic link to Michael. And then with the Loomis character, this is his big entrance, is he's got to come in, you know, and get his big entrance and show that he knows what's going on, even though nobody believes him. And And he doesn't know what's going on, by the way, it's FYI. But yes, I agree. That is, in theory, how the scene should work. But in fact, he spends much of the movie terrorizing this little girl, shaking her, demanding that she tell him where Michael is because he feels like she's holding out and not telling him where the killer uncle is. Like she has a motive for not sharing with the authorities where the man that wants to slaughter her is. Do you think it was a conscious attempt to make Loomis frightening in this movie? Because at many points you wonder who the villain is. I do know that there was a creative struggle on the set in that Donald Pleasant's very much wanted the storyline to be about him. Uh, little girl and it being sort of a mirror about his relationship with the early years of Michael and the director not going for that. So it it doesn't really make sense to me that Donald Pleasance is here. It certainly doesn't make sense to me that he's so abusive to this little girl when the the killer, at least so he thinks, has been exterminated. It, it just doesn't make sense that he's demanding answers for where Michael is if he thinks she's the killer i saw the same thing you saw with his character being crazy when arnie said that thing about maybe they're trying to make him you know more of a villain and that never occurred to me i just thought it was you know the return of the shatner acting for pleasance and i thought his choices were bad and over the top because no one was reining him in and i felt bad for the little girl as an actress having that guy scream in her face the whole time well the scene that i was thinking of is really at the end to jump way forward where i'm watching this i'm like is he offering the girl to Michael? Is he luring Michael with the girl? What's going on? And I think it was intentional. You're supposed to think that he's taking her to Michael for Michael to kill her because Loomis thinks that will end it. I mean, you're it's all very vague, but that's how I was reading it, is it could have gone that way. Uh, I mean, going back to the original where Donald and, and Carpenter talked about how the character's inspiration was sort of Van Helsing, Van Helsing is a character that is not totally heroic, that he is on the side of good but that his methods and that the thrust of what he's trying to do is it's just as crazy in some ways as uh, as the villains and in this one i i agree donald pleasance sam loomis 
is no longer a heroic force in the story. He is one of many characters, authority figures, who is doing bad by Jamie. That, that I, here's this little girl that is just getting crapped on and disappointed by, by everyone. There's a considerable lack of characters who live that are meant to be protectors and heroic figures in the story. Rachel, as you've mentioned, is nixed real early. It's very strange. It was sort of a, a, a throwback to what reminded me of anything else of Friday the 13th Part 2, in which we have a, a major character from the last one taking a shower, coming out, and then getting killed. I yes, thought Psycho, but, when they killed the, uh, the main girl in like really early in the movie, so you didn't understand why they did that? Yes. I was freaked out because I went into this movie not remembering it at all, and I thought it was again going to be those two running from Michael. And I'm sitting there kind of going, I just saw this movie, and then they kill her, and I'm like, oh shit. I agree. It's quote-unquote a game-changer, and it means that we need somebody new to step into that room role and be someone that's going to help little Jamie survive this attack. But did it have to be Tina? Because (laughs) when (laughs) Tina shows up as Rachel's friend, Marjorie, my wife, turns to me and says, please tell me Tina gets it first. (laughs) What an annoying, shrill little slut. And I'm not saying slut in a misogynic way. She's actually a slut. You know what? We're going to disagree here. I actually liked Tina more than I ever liked Rachel. I thought that the actress had more natural screen charisma than Ellie Cornell, the actress Wendy Kaplan. I don't know who the hell that is, but that's who played Cena. She was more of a character. I guess that's what I responded to. She felt like a person, whereas Rachel just felt like some blank, some sitcom nobody who had no personality, totally boring, not interesting in any way. Here was a character who was, yes, uh, sexually promiscuous, complicated, liked children, and yet at the same time was, you know, into doing bad and, and bad boys. Well, of course, that's not my problem with her. You know, I have no problem with bad girls. My problem was she was annoying. She was hopping all around. It was like the actress did an eight ball before going on camera. She was shrill and everywhere. Well, well Donald Pleasance is like he did eight shots before he went on camera. I mean, I, they're all, they all appear off. I just want to say a personal preference. I feel like Tina was a better character and a more appealing person to watch than Rachel, uh, who was assigned to be the protectorate of our child star. Yeah, but wait a second. I agree with you that I enjoyed watching Tina as a character more. I agree with Arnie that she was a little bit annoying. But I don't understand is why I have to care about Tina so much and why she has to carry this movie because it's not <laughs> her movie. You know, it's it. Why does she help this little girl? She has absolutely no connection at all to this little girl that would compel her to right. go out of her way to even see her, visit her on Halloween, to change to her plans, sacrifice to the- her life. <laughs> she ends up jumping in front of the. Night. Life so that Jamie doesn't get killed by Michael. I mean, it, 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 all, this, all, the, all the stuff that she does in this movie is completely unjustified for the character. Yes, let's talk about how far removed that is. The friends of the foster sister <laughs> of a mute, psychopathic child. <laughs> This is the bond that they have. This, this is the relationship. The girl can't even talk. 
anymore. Like we've established that Jamie no longer speaks. She's 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 psychotic, or at least having psychotic episodes. And the Foster family's friend cares enough to go to the Halloween pageant and support her, and not get to have sex with her boyfriend or delay it rather, so that she can support this child. Actually, you're wrong. She doesn't. She skip the pageant to have sex. Yeah, she says to Jamie, "I can't come when you're older. You'll understand." And but she does change her mind. Uh, no, no, she doesn't. Jamie goes to the barn where Tina's at the barn party trying to get laid. Right. Um, and and Loomis goes to the pageant. Yeah. Inexplicably. I guess you're right. But she does make an effort of at least showing up and kissing her and saying, oh, I wish I could be there. True. And she guilts the boyfriend a bit for not being willing to go along. Like, yep. she's telling the boyfriend at least make, stop so that I can see her. It's an important <laughs> for her to take time out of her Halloween to see this mute psychopathic child's <laughs> Halloween pageant. Or at least in her princess costume. And let's talk about her boyfriend, the 50-year-old Fonzie. Fonzie, as I thought the entire time. I don't know how old this actor was. I couldn't find it out. <laughs> but my God, he looked way too old for Tina. I mean, when you first see him, he looks craggly. <laughs> I don't think that's a word. It is now. Uh, he also reminded me of Squiggy a little bit, too, but mostly Fonzie. I go more with Squiggy than Fonzie. Fonzie <laughs> is cool, and this guy wasn't cool. He is the prototypical cool guy with a cool car that's a jerk the the guy that women supposedly like because he, he's bad to them and he's bad in general and his attitude is some kind of raw sexual magnetism i agree i didn't buy it he didn't feel tough enough to be fonzie but he didn't have any uh, yeah i didn't see any chemistry with him and tina either it's uh it's a weird character what i did like about the idea of the character was that he's juxtaposed with michael they're both called michael and they play the game that they did in the first Halloween, where Michael appears to the girl in a sheet with her thinking that it's the boyfriend playing a prank, when in fact, it's her doom coming for her. Tina gets in the car, and Michael is wearing a different mask than he normally wears, and not saying anything, and she can't tell the difference between Michael's quiet crazy psychotic treatment and that of her regular boyfriend that's kind of a funny joke not only that he can't <laughs> tell the body type for god's sake <laughs> i know the guy was at least three feet taller than the boyfriend or the mechanic's jumpsuit that hasn't been washed in a year <laughs> but it's halloween she could maybe think that he's you know i don't know how you fill that out Stilts, <laughs> uh, uh, football padding i i don't know but you can at least give the conceit he's attempting to wear another costume so maybe she thinks i I don't know why she thinks maybe because they're both called Mike. I don't I don't know. But it is at least sort of a funny interplay for a little bit. Of course, that gives you the scene that, you know, these movies love to have where the girls are like, Michael, let me in the car. And, you know, it's she's talking to the killer. Like you say, the double play there where the audience is like, oh, shit, you know. Mm hmm. <laughs> okay, so the nitty-gritty of this movie is that Michael returns to Haddonfield, finds out that Jamie's not in Haddonfield, she's in the sanitarium, whatever the hell she is, and so he kills all the people that are, you know, able to tell him where Jamie is, or he can get clues for it. And, ah, uh, eh. I, well, I here's, don't... What I, here's the problem, and it was a problem in the last movie, too. I don't really understand the nature of their relationship. I understand that Michael wanted to kill his sexually promiscuous older sister for being sexually promiscuous because there is something about his psychosis, something about his bloodthirstiness that he equates with the sinfulness of the sexual act. For him to feel that way about any extended relative, 
it doesn't make any sense to me. It just doesn't work. But we end up finding that Jamie Lee Curtis's character, Lori, was also his sister. I mean, at least she was of age. We're supposed to be meant to feel like any sibling of Michael or any family relationship that's female is in jeopardy. I think that's where they're going with this. But doesn't this go back to what you said, I think, during our part two discussion, which is Michael has to have a target. Otherwise, he'll just kill whoever's walking by. I, I do uh, I do feel that way. I do feel like there needs to be a method to his madness, which they've never had to explain until they took the focus off Laurie Strode. But in this one, they do something that they have not done in any of them before. And that is they've created a link, a mental psychic link between the two of them in which the little girl may in fact be an accomplice. She may, in fact, be the unwilling puppet to Michael's malevolence because of the act that she committed against her foster mother. They don't bring that back again. I feel like that was a lost opportunity. I felt like it would have been more interesting to feel like she was a creepy girl who had the potential to turn on you if you bullied her or if she suddenly felt impelled to do so. But really, they make her an innocent and they don't play with that ever again. And it made me wonder well, then why is she psychically linked to Michael? Why wouldn't he know where she is if they're psychically linked? You know, John Carpenter wrote a movie that was exactly this. It was called The Eyes of Laura Mars, and it was Faye Dunaway would have these flashbacks in which she could see through the eyes of a killer. And eventually she could see that he was looking at her and that she had to run from the killer that she didn't know. I felt like they were heading towards that way, and then something happened in the creative process to make them abandon it. And I feel like if you're going to have a psychic link go for it make it different it was too timid they could have really made this one feel different and instead they barely made it feel different from the last one well it seems like they're really trying to set it up this is you know almost like the empire strikes back of the halloween series because you had part four which was fairly self-contained although there was a little bit of a hint at the end that we could do a sequel and now part five is quite clearly done either incompetently or with part six clearly in mind. <laughs> because there is so much. All of a sudden, again, I called Brock. I'm like, Brock, they keep focusing on this tattoo on Michael's wrist. I don't remember him getting any prison tats. Has he had this tattoo before? No, and he has not. there's this Bon Jovi-looking guy in a black coat who just keeps wandering around. He's obviously important, and at the very end, he becomes a centerpiece, but we don't know why. And then there's the psychic link, and they're opening all these doors, and it's a, we compared the last movie a little bit to Jason X. This is almost like Jason goes to hell the final Friday, where all of a sudden, instead of just having an unstoppable killer, now you're introducing all these mystical elements into it. Psychic powers and... I agree. I feel like it was an attempt to deal with the claustrophobia of the series. They knew Akkad was going to ride this to Halloween 25. They knew he was going to make new Halloween movies forever. So they knew they also, in order to prepare for that, in order for that to be a viable movie franchise, they would have to make the world bigger than Michael Myers. And in doing so, yes, they introduce the idea that there is someone else in the world that is encouraging him and helping him prison break and continue whatever it is that he's doing for their cause. Why would the incarnate of evil need friends? I don't know. It doesn't make sense. 
And I don't think they know. I think that they just knew they needed to open this thing up and they could make the next one the one about the FOMs, Friends of Michael. You know, I don't. we don't see the guy's face. I don't even know if we see a cowboy hat. We see the cowboy boots yeah. and the duster. I first saw his boot come into the scene, the frame, whatever. I think we might have seen his wrist too. The first thing I thought of was Kill Frogs, which is the guy from the Muppet movie. But to me, it was one of those bullshit bounty hunter just there for the sake of being there and i don't not going to find out enough information about this guy character and the fact that he keeps coming back later on was unfulfilling for me but that he broke michael out at the end i felt was at least a little promising that we might get a good character the last time we saw a bounty hunter an unfulfilling bounty hunter character in a horror movie it was the dude from 21 jump street that came out of nowhere knew all this information and then didn't follow through all that the promise the character had so i have no hopes for this guy whatsoever but i just found it really odd that he kept on coming back but didn't really do anything and we don't know who it is. It seemed completely like this is a bridge movie for the hell of it. Why didn't they just tell this guy's story this time? If you're going to put Michael escaping from the mine shaft in the beginning of the movie and sleeping in this guy's cave, why not have this guy be that guy? Or why I... not have this guy save Michael? Why on earth are we having these little teases throughout the whole movie and then not fulfilling it at the end instead of giving me a big old tease at the end? It doesn't make any sense. Because they didn't know and because they knew that they would have to do something different in the next movie. I th- I feel like it was totally a way for them to open up the story because they knew it is not possible to keep making movies in which a little girl runs away from a big scary man with a knife. Then do that this movie. You don't need a bridge movie. If that's the story they want to tell, then either put the girl to safety and get her away from him completely and have Michael and this guy go on different adventures, you know, do a road movie for God's sake. I don't care. But wh- why, why waste our time with yet another rehashing of the same kind of stuff but completely worse than four plus had this guy come in and out of the movie inexplicably well i can tell you this it's because mustafa after the success of four and four was a success wanted to make a halloween movie every year yeah and while they've been able to pull it off with saw they weren't able to pull it off with halloween this came out one year after the last one it was rushed it was unfinished in certain regards and it bombed miserably and so they didn't do the next one the next year so why create a bridge movie money they figure they're going to be churning these out once a year they don't want to run out of story yeah that's what i'm saying and it's you got the wrong people making decisions you have the money man who just wants to use halloween as a mint that it's just literally going to be every every year i can guarantee that i'm going to make 30 million dollars in theaters and you know oh come on 15 let's be honest yeah, right. Because well, the Friday the Thirteenth movies are coming out one a year, you know, and so that, right. that was probably his model he was thinking about. I guess. Yeah, but you. not at this okay. point. At this point, the slasher no. craze was dying down. No, was uh, it was it was at the peak. It was at the peak. Nineteen eighty nine. That was the peak. That was where it was going to turn. That was where it was going to tip. In nineteen eighty nine, with Halloween five, Nightmare on Elm Street five, and Friday the Thirteenth Part eight, jumped the shark. It was at that point that people stopped going to see them in the same way that they did. 
Okay. It was it was played out, and yeah. uh, I don't think Akkad knew that he thought he was going to get into the action that Friday the Thirteenth and Nightmare on Elm Street had to do. And to me, that's sad because I always felt like Halloween, at least the first two, was so much better than those other series, and that they didn't need to be chasing the tail of the other series. They could have been doing their own things. I do think Carpenter was onto something with the idea that he could have made an anthology movie about Halloween. I think he picked an incredibly atrocious story to launch that idea with Halloween 3, but he wasn't wrong with the idea that there was nowhere else to go with Michael Myers. He was right and these movies are proving him right. Yeah. If if the movie had played more with the psychic link, I at least would have found it more interesting. They only do it once, and there's a scene in which Tina is uh, in peril. She thinks she's with her boyfriend, but she's with Michael. He's going to do something horrible to her, we know, but first she has to get some cigarettes at the convenience store. And we see little Jamie at the Halloween pageant somehow seeing this through Michael's eyes. A la, uh, eyes of Laura Mars, as I spoke about. She's starting to talk for the first time because she had been mute up until that point. And she's starting to tell them things. And somehow Donald Pleasance, who has nothing better to do but to go to a mental ward children's Halloween pageants, pops up and can infer from her gibberish that somehow <laughs> Tina, who he even knows, Tina <laughs> is in danger. And because she can see some of the advertising around the, su- the uh, convenience store, that they must send squadrons of police to her rescue. It was a very cobbled, badly thought out scene, but I liked the idea of it. And if they had done that well and done it more often, you would have had a better movie here. If you could have played off the idea that this little girl knows what the killer is going to do, but she can't communicate it well to the people that can do something about it, that's good tension. I agree with you. By the same token, I was glad at that scene because at that scene, finally, Jamie gets to speak again, and I I was really tired of her, ah, which is basically how my voice is sounding now. But nonetheless, just her constant pantomiming had become old. She wasn't a character. She was, you know, just locked in a room. Once she was able to speak again, then strangely, that also meant she could leave the school. Mm. Yeah, they dropped yeah. it so quick. I don't know. I, I could have gone with her being mute for the rest of the series or at least the rest of this movie. But it was just like once she could talk, suddenly she was talking all the time. It mm-hmm. was, yeah, it was so yeah. it was so half half asked which would describe most of this movie yeah and during this whole thing you know loomis is now speaking like he knows what's going on more than ever before and now not only is michael unstoppable evil but there's a rage and i think it's capital r rage and somehow jamie can take away that rage Mm mm-hmm and it's the uh, uh, worst child psychologist I've ever seen. I'm going to <laughs> dangle a child in front of a homicidal sociopath uh, to get him to quell his inner demons. Terrible, terrible child psychologist. Yeah, and but the thing is, I didn't understand how, what would cure the rage. Would it be killing Jamie? Would Jamie, you know, the way Jamie got him to cry a tear? Would being around Jamie make him feel better about life? Well, know? they do get to to the meat of it so the movie was billed as the unmasking of Michael Myers as if we hadn't seen that before in every other movie and as if this one was really going to get you a good look uh, untrue 
when they take off the mask, they really, you know, could have gone the Friday the 13th route. I mean, we have Michael who was burned for 10 years. He had his face bandaged. They could have really gone the gnarly, pussy burn route. And instead, his skin looked normal and we just see a tear. Yeah. it uh, And blonde hair. It was anticlimactic. Those things tend to be. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll stir the pot here. I know you guys are big Star Wars fans. I think it's, it's disappointing when Vader gets unmasked. It's always disappointing when you unmask something that you have an idea about what's underneath and then you actually see it. So maybe they're not wrong about never showing us, but don't tease me. Don't take it off and then not show me. Either put it, keep it on or take it off and let's get a good look. You sound like me talking to some of my old girlfriends. But other than that... And see... <laughs> <laughs> it just seems like that's what the horror audience wants is show us the gore and that could have been a chance to show us something really fucked up and you know they're just it's <laughs> this movie's not about giving the audience what it wants it's about teasing the audience to continue to want it until the next movie but they do have this scene in which jamie is alone with her uncle he's about to do her and she uses the the term uncle and it he it strikes some kind of sentimental chord with him. It reminds him of the humanity that is somehow still enmeshed with this unstoppable evil. He removes his own mask in shadow. Damn it, we still don't get a good look. And he sheds a single tear. And all I could think of was, didn't they shoot out both his eyes in part two? <laughs> Isn't this yeah. man supposed to be blind? How is he crying? How is he then seeing to get everywhere around then, Stuart? I mean, you can go the there. The fire healed him. Yeah. Um, that's what you were thinking in that scene. I was thinking in that scene, A, why is there a coffin there? And B, why did she voluntarily <laughs> crawl into it? She was preparing to die. I thought that was a little intense, actually. She was accepting the fact that Michael was going to kill her, and that was her fate. Oh, I didn't pretty, get that at all. And the job, she was hiding in it. And the coffin was there because he stole it from a graveyard. Loomis says that in one of his many threatening speeches to Jamie. There's a coffin! What do you think he's going to do with it? <laughs> because when Rachel was killed in her house, the friends came over to the house, looking all over the house, and didn't find her body. So in addition to the coffin in that scene... We find Rachel's body in the room as well. And yeah. I must have missed that whole coffin. Uh, beautiful line reading by Donald Pleasance. I must have missed that entire thing. So, well, not must have. I did. Because I did notice when Rachel was there that that's what happened there. So maybe they were saying this whole – he was collecting all this stuff. Maybe he, Michael was preparing some sort of ceremony to bury all this stuff once and for all. I mean I don't know. He, they he, really he does – he does get sentimental. You can go back to the first movie and remember that he goes to the cemetery and takes the tombstone of his sister and puts right. it next to the body of a girl he kills. So obviously there is some tokenism to the way that he kills that strikes a chord. I don't know that it makes any sense. I don't really want to spend too much energy trying to figure out what <laughs> Michael's doing because I've never enjoyed Halloween's as a profile of a serial killer. I don't think it's written or designed for you to look at it and go, so that's the methodology of a killer. It was designed to be a parable about a young woman dealing with her sexual anxiety in men. That's why one and two are good. That's why four and five are terrible. 
But here we are. We're now having to be forced to think about Michael and the friends that bust Michael out of jail and this whole alternate universe. And it's just falling apart. It's falling apart the more we're expected to think outside of the parameters of what the original movie did. Not only that, they also have uh, those two kids. They had the party up, up north, whatever, and the two kids are in the barn. And Michael kills the kids having sex in the barn. That was very right out of Friday the 13th. It wasn't really Michael Myers. It was really right out of the slasher genre as we were talking about earlier and I felt that entire thing was out of place. First of all a safe sex reference this is in the 80s I thought that was very progressive. Well about that time James Bond had a single girl there was that big deal about Tom Hanks's thing with the condom box and that movie Dragnet they actually made the cover of the Daily News I believe so it was very in. To put this in a political reference Ronald Reagan used the word AIDS for the first time in 1987 and then everyone st- suddenly felt like they could print and talk about safe sex and what that means. George Michael, I want your sex. All of that was pre. Afterwards, he was all about. Well, we won't talk about. Get, cut, Mike George Michael, because that's bad. Cause, uh, <laughs> yeah, too much, too much bathroom sex, uh, casual sex. No, uh, bad one. But Ronald Reagan sort of ushered in an era of sexual responsibility when he started to acknowledge how deadly AIDS was at that time. No cure. Nothing that even seemed to work. It was a death sentence. And I think that movies were starting to feel the heat that, hey, we really shouldn't promote promiscuity as as much as we do. Well, Friday the 13th didn't jump on that bandwagon for at least another four years. I think it was, again, Jason Goes to Hell the Final Friday, where they finally have the have unsafe sex and die. I don't remember, but I'll take your word. But then, again, speaking of Friday the 13th, that entire barn sequence reminded me of Friday the 13th Part 3, where the chain gang is in the barn with Jason. Yeah, sure. I, I just felt felt like it was funny that Friday the 13th started as a ripoff of Halloween and now Halloween is ripping off Friday the 13th. It's a very sad turn of events in my estimation. Halloween being so much better the original than Friday the 13th the original. It's so much sad. It's very sad to watch them trying to play catch up with the ripoff. It was so unmotivated by anything that had happened. It it was like, why was Michael there? Jamie wasn't there. There was no reason for Michael to go to the beer bash in the woods at all, except to get Tina. Like, that was very weird. Tina is rescued by those cops, as we mentioned, at the convenience store, and they immediately take her to an underage drinking party in the woods. (laughs) (laughs) Cool cops. I got to say. Did you notice the score for the cops? Stu? Uh, yes. yes. In case you didn't know they were dumb, they put little um, silly sound effects and boings and blah, 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 and, and all this silliness when they walked and, and synced it to when they walked so that you know they were ridiculous characters. So anyway, there is just an extended sequence in which we can have more kills because the story of one man trying to kill one eight-year-old girl is not bloody enough for this genre, I suppose. And thus, the hiccification of Haddonsfield continues as it's a barn party. Yes. It didn't make any sense that it was in the barn either because they established early they want to have it at the Carruthers. Rachel's parents have gone away for Halloween. It's all going to be by themselves. And that's why Tina rushes in there to see what's going on. And they have a whole giant empty house to themselves. And instead they move the beer bash to the tower barn or whatever it was called. Weird. 
Did you notice the old lady at the party? Because she was freaking me out. There was like an 80-year-old woman in a rocker with all these like teens gyrating and grinding around her. Totally missed it. Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah, it was weird. I'm like, mm. why is my grandma at that party? At first, I actually rewound it because I wanted to see if it was just a really good costume. And no, it's like a grandma sitting there like, why are you all in my house? Mm. Maybe she was a relative of one of the big major investors. They had to give her a part, you know. I don't know. It's weird. I wish I'd seen it. Well, you know, I'm going to say something here. We're, I feel like we're bashing the movie, and I feel like the movie deserves it. But I'm going to say <laughs> this right now. I feel like this movie is better made visually than the fourth movie. That I feel like this director had a better sense of what was working in Halloween, the way that it looked. And he went back to handheld camera. The color scheme was much better. It was much dar- a richer, darker quality to it. And he was trying to consciously recall moments and scenes that were the best parts of the original film. There was an attempt, at least, that I did not see in part four to make this closer in spirit to Halloween. And I did appreciate that minimally better than part four. I felt like they were at least trying to make a better film than the one that we saw before. I can't argue with that, but I had so much more problems with this plot than I did for part four. I agree. The screenplay is worse. The direction is better. Is that you got to decide, you know, that's a you know, death by hanging or death by bullet to the head. I don't know which one you want to pick, but that's the way I felt like it was going. It was definitely uh, one step forward, one step backward. Yeah, I don't know. I just, the whole thing was unfulfilling for me because it felt like there were these great ideas that were never explained. And the other part of it, the barn party killing teens part, was just kind of boring. No, but you know what? I, there are moments and there are cool sequences. Uh, well, I'll give you one. I thought that sequence in which Jamie has wandered with her little pirate <laughs> boyfriend to the barn party to save Tina because she loves Tina so much. Tina is so important to her life as being the the friend of the foster family she tried to kill. And Michael is in a car and there's a very cool sequence in which she's running away and he's driving to her, running over trees. And I've, I've never actually seen a sequence shot that well in that way. I actually thought it was well done. He ends up crashing into a car and they play that old horn gimmick again, something they did in part two, where we hear the horn that we know that must mean that Michael has fallen over onto to the wheel that he's dead ha 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 and as of course Jamie uh, and Tina are are trying to pull it together and get away the horn stops and we know we're back into it again I thought that was actually a very good sequence and I didn't see any sequence like that in Halloween 4 another strong sequence was the laundry chute scene there's a really cool shot of her climbing into a laundry chute and then him reaching inside and her falling down and a whole sort of inner cat and mouse interplay in which he has to climb back up the chute while he is trying to open it and stab through it. I mean, those peril scenes are stronger to me than what was being done in the last film. They look better, they're filmed better, and there's, you know, I don't want to oversell them. This is a terrible film. But they are (laughs) (laughs) they are pound for pound better horror movie sequences than we were getting. 
Well, by the time they get to that scene with a laundry shoot, I didn't care anymore. I honestly well, didn't. And that's a fair co- complaint because you're right. We're totally checked out. They kill yeah. Tina. Hell, the, the, what, after they kill the character that we were supposed to care about that takes care of Jamie, they kill the new one. So at that point, there is literally no one in the movie from Donald Pleasance or anyone else that we like. And that is the problem is that they have eliminated all likable characters with the exception of this little girl who herself is complicated, potentially a killer. There's nowhere to put your energy in this movie. You just want it to be over at that point. You also kill Loomis twice in this one. Do, is and, he dead? And why is he dead? That was a weird ending to me. I have to agree. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't know if he's dead. He came back from fire before. So <laughs> they, they, kill, they kill him twice in this one. And it, it was funny. The one he, he fell on top of Michael's body or something. I thought either A, he had a heart attack. B, he just had a really satisfying poop. Or, <laughs> or C, he was spent after having intercourse. Because he really, <laughs> his face was like, oh, ah. And yeah, was. I think they were trying to draw some parallel that now that Michael is dead, uh, Loomis can die or that their that their lives were somehow in, entwined in some way. But I mean, Michael's not even dead. He falls into a, a net trap, something out of MacGyver or something. <laughs> it was like chains, too. Yeah. With, with, he gets shot with tranquilizers. We know yeah. that that has not killed him. And yet well, tranquilizers uh, falls supposed to calm him down. It's not supposed to I, kill him, obviously. I, I guess. But, uh, but my my point is that it would have been satisfying to me if Loomis and Myers died together. I can go with that as an ending. But it's not satisfying to me to watch Donald Pleasant suddenly fall over with a strange <laughs> facial expression <laughs> lying on a tranked Michael Myers in a metal mesh net. That's That, to me, is not a conclusion. Well... Basically, what you're asking for is what they did with Halloween 2 when they were both supposed to die. Correct, correct. That is acceptable. This was not acceptable. And, of course, it was a false ending because then they go and go one step further and do this weird – there's the man in black who is, we think, stalking Michael Myers but is, in fact, an accomplice who busts him out of jail. Who knows what he is, really? I mean, we know he kills the cops, but is he hunting Michael? That's what I was getting from because, again, to go back to Jason Goes to Hell the final Friday and Brock made the reference to the bounty hunter character there maybe this is the guy who knows how to kill Michael I all we know is at the end he kills all the cops yeah you know what I'm I'm literally like duck and cover getting into a crash position waiting for what is coming next like I somehow have this feeling having never seen it that Halloween 6 is actually going to be the worst one at all like it's preparing us for the absolute Batman and Robin over the top <laughs> worst worst <laughs> one of the whole series I'm going to go predict that right now having never seen it I just feel like we're heading somewhere I don't want to go and I'm scared for the first time in a long time i'm scared to watch a halloween movie because i know it's gonna hurt me it's gonna hurt me but i guess i'm done with halloween five and you know i just all i can do is brace for what is to come before they pull it back and and give us jamie lee curtis again and and give it a little bit more dignity yeah i think they're taking this down a bad path what started off as utter simplicity killer attacks babysitter in house i mean just the most simple of concepts is now there's a weird man in black, which I, I know from reading the Wikipedia page, the writers didn't even know what the man in black was in this movie. I believe that. They just wanted it I there. believe that. They wanted to add something. And then the next writer has to go, well, now I have to decide who the man in black was because it's a cliffhanger. Yes. 
It's somebody else's job. I don't <laughs> want to have to figure out what it is. I just want it to be somebody else's job because I know this series can't sustain itself on the fumes of what it has become. And you do have to open it up. I mean, once you get to a part six, I mean, we know this having watched a lot of series at this point. The desperation for novelty to open up a series that has gotten stale and redundant and monotonous, you do have to go and and risk and roll the dice on something bold and new and something that's going to give you a new charge. And a mysterious stranger who struts around town with a tattoo and cowboy boots who is responsible for busting Michael out of jail is not a mystery I'm willing to buy. It's not, I don't want to go there. I don't want to know who he is. I don't want to know what happens next. I want my Halloween movie back. I want my Jamie Lee Curtis. And I'm just going to have to suffer through one more, I feel like, before I can have my Jamie Lee Curtis again. To take this a little high level, though, has it ever worked when they try the game changer in a series? Has that ever worked? Because it seems like they always try the game changer and then go, well, shit. And then they do the reboot, which is completely back (laughs) to the original. Yes, yes. It is usually the last gasp before they just scrap it all and start again. It's the uh, having the child in the sitcom and that child miraculously grows up to be six years old the following season. So they don't have to worry about having a baby jokes for years and years. It's it it oh, is a typical it, thing that it happens. It actually isn't the aging process. It's just the bringing in of the child. It's trying to add a new element to create yeah. the freshness. And usually with a sitcom, though, you do that because you started with cute kids. Those cute kids are now hideous adolescents. Yes, and exactly. so you need another cute kid. But with a movie, what's happened is they've seen the old one, and so we feel like we have to top ourselves. So let's make it a new thing. Let's have some mysterious man in black and make it epic. Mm-hmm. And I mean. You just start to prepare for like, okay, is Michael Myers going to rap? Like you think about <laughs> think about trends and them trying to jump onto trends and you're just like, they're going to do anything to try and make him seem current. And I just, that's always the worst. It's, you know, it's Scrappy-Doo, it's Johan and Pee-wee, it's, it's desperation. <laughs> it's the, the shape is no longer the shape of pure evil, it's the shape of pure desperation. Is it just me or was this movie longer than the others or did it just feel longer? Oh, it felt longer. I, I think it was like 97 minutes or something. I don't think it's any longer. I think it's the fatigue of feeling like we're seeing the same scenario repeat again and again and again. There's not enough new here in the dynamic. Uh... Or rather, the new stuff isn't prominent enough to make us feel like this couldn't have happened in the last movie. Most of these scenes feel like they could have happened in the last movie. Or or you could jumble them all up and it wouldn't matter what order they came in. Yeah, I just, by the time Jamie was running to the barn party and then they go back to the house, it was when they went back to the house. I'm like, really, are we in the fourth half hour here? I'm lost. And can I just say, why is the house still standing? Truly, why haven't the neighbors lobbied to have the thing demoed and build a nice condominium or city park? I mean, they have a why? Shitty, shitty alderman. Yeah, they really do. He's the one that Michael really ought to take out because <laughs> they allow this to be this some fright house with cobwebs. And I mean, you know, you just get splinters looking at it. You know, you can't walk into that house. I mean, at least maintain it. Somebody mow a lawn. I mean, ridiculous. All right. So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers? Stuart. All right. I'll say this much. If you suffered through part four and lived and want more, I actually think this is an improvement. So I recommend that to those people. (laughs) 
those people are not my people because my yes. people didn't want to go past Halloween <laughs> 2. And I, right now I'm looking for a good reason to go Hallow- past Halloween 2 because I feel like the thing peaked. And I'm just fearful about where we're headed and I'm just praying Halloween 6 is not going to hurt me any worse than these last two have. No, it's not a good movie. Don't see it unless you're a completist. Arnie. I wouldn't say this movie's any better than the last one or any worse because it just does different things. I said in the last one that there were some ideas they were trying to introduce. But I felt in the last one like they were fully formed ideas. Like, you know, they just hated the full nine months because they set up putting Jamie in the clown suit and then at the end, she's killing people. Here, it feels like this thing was never brought to term. It was like squatted out at six months and it needed three more months to gestate because there's a lot of ideas here which are new and could in fact be interesting, but they stopped the movie at the point at which you're gonna do it. It's a huge cock tease. And so I, unfortunately, I have memory of the next one. I'm going in with an open slate, but as I recall, the next one isn't much better. And so the only reason I'd recommend this is because you need this as setup for the next one. It, you know, you, you can't watch Return of the Jedi without having seen Empire Strikes Back. So this is the Empire Strikes Back. If you're going to watch the trilogy, then yeah, I recommend you watch this one because you're going to be confused. But that. So let me get this straight. They don't just throw out everything and go a different direction. The Man in Black is going to come back. The Man in Black returns. The tattoos oh. return. Oh, no. All right, don't oh, say uh, anymore. Don't say anymore. <laughs> I want to see this train wreck for myself and have a clean <laughs> slate as possible because I literally have no idea what's going to happen in the next one. I, I don't not. either, but I know that I don't want it. Uh, yeah, I don't want to see it either. So, uh, Arnie, <laughs> do you recommend it or, uh, or, or not? If you're going to watch all three, then yes, because you have to, but I just recommend skipping these three all together i think (laughs) and for my two cents on five i i thought the last one was actually pretty i i got into it enough to despite all its flaws and, and hilarity the last one I was able to enjoy on some level. This one, I was bored and I didn't get why things were happening at all. I was constantly questioning the choices this movie made in every aspect. So no, I cannot recommend this one. I can recommend the last one slightly. This one, I can't do it. And based on what you just said, Arnie, I'm just, I'm going to be as open-minded as possible for six, but you know what? But I want to be very clear. Although this is not a very good movie, this one, to me, like, you know, the biggest train wreck we've seen so far in this series this is not jason takes manhattan bad it is just not it it, but it's not you know it's not good and that's all i'm gonna say about that for now so if you enjoyed listening to our podcast please visit www.nowplayingpodcast.com and download the other podcasts in this series and our other episodes in our horror retrospectives and our star trek retrospectives and our terminator retrospective check out our other episodes if you enjoy this one our house of a thousand corpses retrospective yes everything yeah <laughs> download everything we recorded please go to itunes and leave us a, a positive review if you enjoyed our series so other people can find us if you want to leave us an email with your thoughts or comments you can do so at show at nowplayingpodcast.com and if you want to join in the discussion on our forums you can find a link to our forums on the homepage of nowplayingpodcast.com so I want to thank Stuart and Arnie for joining me today thanks guys thank you see you in hell (laughs) actually we will see you again for Halloween 6 which I believe is subtitled The Curse of Michael Myers we're cursed all right. oh yeah so uh, bring it on see you guys what's the boogeyman as a matter of fact, it was. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Now Playing's Halloween Retrospective. 
It's all over, my friend. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can listen to our other installments, as well as our Friday the 13th, House of a Thousand Corpses, Terminator, and Star Trek retrospective series at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production and is not affiliated with Compass International, Universal Pictures, Galaxy International Pictures, Dimension Films, Miramax Films, or The Weinstein Company. Michael Myers and all other Halloween characters and situations are copyright and trademarks of those companies and no infringement is intended. Stuart wins the podcast with Johan and Pee Wee. Way to pull out a reference, man. That was great. I'm, I'm sitting here. I was into Smurfs, and I'm like, Johan and fuck? What the hell? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I pulled in Squiggy, but you taught me with Johan and Pee Wee. <laughs> <laughs>